Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Rugby Lineout podcast. Or really, should I say, uh, this month's edition, because I'm ashamed to say that it has actually been an entire month since I've last done a podcast. Um, like I mentioned, uh, I've been in the process of moving my 86-year-old father from BC to Toronto, so that's uh, getting him settled in a condo. That's taken up a lot of time. Work's been really busy. Uh, it's the summer, family commitments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the list goes on. Um, but I am genuinely apologetic, as there has been a ton of rugby going on. But unfortunately, I just simply haven't had time to get round uh, to getting a podcast out. The same also applies to the blog. I've only just managed to uh, get one out this week. The uh, usual lineout calls of the week over on uh, the rugbylineout.com. So yeah, I'm sorry for the silence. Not intentional. Just life and and everything in general has just got in the way but on that note there is plenty of of things to talk about in the rugby world um since the end of june we had the pacific four series for uh women's rugby come to a conclusion in ottawa over two weekends in july and an absolutely fabulous performance from our glorious canadian women um so really really uh, excited about that we had the rugby championship the abbreviated form of the rugby championship uh this year because of the the world cup just around the corner in only 29 count them 29 days time to the world cup um and then obviously right now in july uh, sorry in august we have all the uh the warm-up matches for the Rugby World Cup uh, in full swing. Uh, there have been squad announcements for the Rugby World Cup from um, quite a few of the countries now. So as I say, July and the beginning of August has been a really busy, uh, busy time in the world of international rugby. So on that note, uh, let's get into it. The way I'm going to uh, deal with this week's podcast, because I think, you know, for me and and, and for a lot of us, and especially as Canadians, um, the performance of Canada in the Pacific Four Series uh, was so important and so monumental uh, that really, you know, despite it's now, it's now very much past history, as it were, being the, the tournament having concluded over three weeks ago, almost a month ago now, um, it's still, for me, very much fresh in the mind and I think really deserves some attention because the, the effort from our Canadian women in that tournament was just absolutely fabulous. So I want to start off talking about that. I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the, uh, the outcome of the rugby championship and um, and how New Zealand and their clean sweep of the tournament is really starting to look ominous in terms of their their the threat they are going to pose uh, come the World Cup in 29 days' time. Um, but also how the other countries fared as well. Um, also looking at what I think has really come under, under the microscope quite a bit uh, in the last couple of weeks is... You know, Eddie Jones's uh, tenure uh, now as the new coach of the Wallabies. Uh, let's be brutally honest, it hasn't really got off to the best of starts. Um, 
so yeah, we'll be looking at that and uh, a pretty uh, pretty radical uh, Wallabies squad named for the World Cup by Jones. Um, I think also, you know, much could be said in a similar vein to that in terms of England's kind of faltering start to their Summer Nations series last week against Wales and the resulting pick by Borthwick, you know, when you consider it so relatively early in proceedings, uh, as he's now picked his World Cup squad. Um, and also, finally, having a look at Scotland, who quite frankly, impressed the hell out of me last weekend in uh, their game against, uh, albeit uh, a second-string French side, but but what a game that was. And, you know, Scotland made some real statements, I thought, in that game. And I think, um, you know, they're going into this tournament as underdogs, but uh, write them off at your peril. Um, so, yeah, some exciting stuff there. But let's start off with... Canada's women. And I just want to say they're epic, plain and simple. Uh, Their performance in the Pacific Four series, which concluded last month, was simply outstanding. As a result of their performance, they have managed to cement their status as the fourth best women's team in in international rugby. Um, and as a result of their second place finish in the Pacific Four Series, means they will be in the top tier of the new World Rugby W15 tournament, which takes place in uh, November. And the top tier of that competition will be played out um, in New Zealand. And so, you know, the great thing about Canada is we will be at the top of the table. Uh, we will co- get to compete with the world's very best in that. And that is just such a, a shot in the arm for uh, women's rugby in this country. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I cannot begin to describe how, how excited I am about it. Um, like I say, I think, um, you know, they, they did really well in that tournament. They, they comfortably beat the U.S. and Australia admittedly, you know, they took a bit of a beating at the hands of, of world champions New Zealand and Ottawa. But even in that game, um, there were a ton of positives that came out of that game, which really interestingly then fed into their final game of the series against Australia. Um, and, you know, I, I think um, one of the, what, whatever you want to say about that game against, against the Black Ferns, and and the loss um you know new canada put in an absolutely massive effort um sure the score line at the end you know at the, the final whistle was not particularly flattering to canada um but you know if you look at that game you know go go watch the replays go go watch the highlights of that game you know, they were in that game for large periods of, of time. Um, yeah, sure, 52-21 is not the world's most flattering scoreline. Um, but, you know, right up until the 59th minute, it was this real sort of ebb and flow uh, to the game. And, you know, you thought Canada were, you know, New Zealand were just about to start running a ro- a- away on the scoreboard, leaving Canada in their dust. And yet the Canadians would come back and, and get themselves back in the match. And they did that on numerous occasions right up until the 59th minute and then 
Finally, I think the sheer effort of trying to keep up with a very, very slick and polished uh, New Zealand black fern side got to them. And, you know, as a result, the, the last 20 minutes, New Zealand, as most of us probably expected, started to, to run away with, with proceedings. Um, you know, you looked at Canada versus New Zealand in that game, and New Zealand just looked so slick and so well rehearsed. They, they made it look almost effortless. Um, whereas Canada at times were trying to be far too ambitious. They were trying too hard, you know, hats off to them for 110% commitment. But as a result, it got a little bit, you know, away from them. It was a bit too ambitious at times. Their kicking game, I thought really left a lot to be desired and that really wasn't working out for them. They gave away a little bit far too much possession as a result. Um, but you know, it didn't stop them. They they never they never gave up. They just kept on trying. And as I say, right up until the last quarter, they they were in that game. Um, but I think you know I think one of the things that of of the whole Pacific Four series, what impressed me the most about Canada's effort in that tournament was, you know, I had a big list of of to dos for Canada after that game against New Zealand. And what was so rewarding and so impressive was I looked at the game against Australia the following weekend, and they had ticked all of those boxes of things they needed to fix. How often do you see a team do that? And that is a huge credit to both the coaching staff and the players themselves in to, to make such a turnaround in the space of, of just a week. Um you know, it was it was really interesting. It, it was like Canada looked like a mirror image of New Zealand in terms of clinical execution and precision in that game against Australia. It was an absolute joy to watch um, as they literally, you know, they I felt kind of sorry for Australia because they just took them apart for the with ease uh, for the full 80 minutes. And I think it's Canada's ability to learn from their mistakes and apply the lessons learned that impresses me the most. And it just leads me to believe that this team is just going to go from strength to strength and has a very bright future ahead of it. You know, there were so many um, standout individual performances um, in the game against Australia, as you know, as there were um, in the game against New Zealand, but certainly in the game against Australia. Um, you know, Tyson Bukaboom, phenomenal effort. Emily Totosi. Um, Courtney Holtkamp, uh, the Sarah Sabota, the, the list just goes on and on and on. Sophie DeGoody. And I mean, like our good friend Squidge Rugby says, hats off to any number eight who can kick with her degree of consistency and reliability. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, Justine Pelche, uh, Paige Ferries, uh, Sarah Kelljuvi, Alicia Corrigan, Maddie Grant. I mean, the list just goes on. They, Every one of those women stood up and, uh, and and was counted. Just a fantastic performance. And, you know, we as Canadians should be so proud of it. Um, you know, a stark contrast, for example, to our floundering men's side, um, especially as evidenced by their 28-3 thrashing at the hands of Tonga yesterday. Um, you know, in short, I just want to say this women's team led by the truly inspirational Sophie DeGoody and coached by the exceptional Kevin Rue, is a force to be reckoned with in international rugby. And as Canadians, we should all be immensely proud of them. You know, while rugby may still struggle for resources in this country, this team is an outright success story. 
the men's team may sadly be kind of irrelevant on the world stage at the moment, but Canada's women have rightfully claimed their place at its top table. And rugby's Canada's ultimate priority should be to keep them there. Even if for the foreseeable future, given the current funding climate, it means prioritizing resources for the women's program at the expense of the men's. I'm sorry, you know, that's who's delivering right now and we need to keep them there. And I think it would be a tragedy if, you know, we didn't maintain this and shifted funding so that, you know, they lost out on opportunity. We've got to keep this momentum going. It's fabulous and and truly exciting. So to end, just, you know, hats off to, to the Canadian women. Fantastic job. Looking forward to seeing more. Can't wait for the W15 in November. And just seeing you go from strength to strength. So, yeah, the Rugby Championship. New Zealand. Uh, I would say they are looking exceptionally dangerous at just the right time. And so far, I think they are, this this season, this year, they fired their initial warning shots across the bow of the, of the World Cup ship. Um, you know, their clean sweep of the Rugby Championship and the two Blood is Low Cup uh, matches, you know, they're a, they're a shadow of the, of the misfiring team from, from last year. Um, and I think they're well on track to, to challenge for top honors in France. You know, 2022, excuse me, 2022 was a horrible year for the All Blacks, um, but they're back with a vengeance this year. You know, um, sure, South Africa finished second in, in, the, in the rugby championship, and we will... I'm not going to really focus on South Africa in this podcast. We'll talk about them next week, uh, along with Argentina, who, interestingly enough, and all credit to Argentina, uh, they did not, uh, as many predicted they would. Many people thought, oh, they'll be holding the wooden spoon again in this year's rugby championship. They did not. They finished a strong third. It was Australia who ended up clutching the the wooden spoon. More to come on that in a minute. Um but, you know, I think with New Zealand, sure, they still have to test their mettle against, you know, Northern Hemisphere sides, particularly the giants of France and, and Ireland. And I think until they've done that, you know, that will give us a, a true test and idea of, of where they're at. But, I, you know, I, you simply can't deny that they're already looking like they're on the front grid along with France to have a shot at lifting that Webb Ellis trophy uh, at the end of October. Um, you know, they, they cruised past everybody in the rugby championship. They only really looked mildly vulnerable, I would say, against Australia in the second blood is low test. Excuse me, but that was, you know, they chose to play a, what they call a second string side in that game. Um, but I think what's really important to note about that game was, you know, they may have wobbled at times against Australia in the second blood is low game. But it's those kind of down-to-the-wire games that are such crucial preparation for knockout rug- the knockout rugby of the World Cup. You know, with everything on the line, it's the ability of your bench to come on and steady the ship and have the collective nerves to get the job done, which is so important. And that's precisely what, you know, fly half Richie Moenga and his benchmates did. And as a result for me, there's little doubt that New Zealand's halfback partnership come the big games will consist of Aaron Smith and Richie Moenga. Their tight five looks capable and reliable with just the right amount of depth. Their back row is buzzing with a combination of new and experienced heads. The exceptional Artie Savia is able to anchor the whole forward unit at eight. And I'd 
I'd argue he's probably the best at his trade in the world right now. Their backs and center pairings look lethal. And, you know, I just think New Zealand's World Cup squad looks the business, plain and simple. Like I say, the, the proof of the pudding will be how, <coughs> excuse me, how well the old back machine can adapt to uh, what's going on in the Northern Hemisphere right now. And uh, despite how sharp they look at the moment, we won't get to find that out really until they face France in that critical opener of the World Cup on September the 8th. But, you know, I think everybody needs to take a deep breath. They are looking pretty ominous. Eddie Jones and the Wallabies, his big gamble as he names his squad for the World Cup after, let's face it, apart from that uh, that last Bledisloe Cup game, a pretty dismal rugby championship. As, uh, you know, Australia got beaten by everybody, Argentina, South Africa, and New Zealand, and really did not look at the races. Now, just before you write them off, I personally think that their effort in that second Bledisloe Cup match was pretty pretty darned impressive. Um, so I would write them off at your peril. Um, but, you know, despite that one-off game, which did show promise for the future, and that's where I think Australia have to focus on. But, you know, prior to that, Eddie Jones' time as head coach of the Wallaby was starting to look as tenuous as his time with England. Um, you know, uh, I think, you know, whether you like him or not, you know, the usual sort of Eddie Jones media baiting is already in full throttle. Um, and with a, especially with his seemingly preposterous claim um, that his charges are genuine World Cup contenders. I have my doubts about that one, but anyway. But putting aside my own personal and a lot of people's general distaste for Jones. And we all kind of joke, like he's got this obvious desire to almost have like a cameo role in, in Netflix's formula one drive to survive. You know, he's got that, that's the way he's sort of using the media, but write the man off at your peril. Um, as evidenced by that narrow loss in blood, blood is low too. That was an impressive performance from the Wallabies, whichever way you cut it. And, and I think it clearly shaped Jones' decision-making in his World Cup squad selection. His gamble on that young halfback partnership of scrum half Tate McDermott and the rapidly rising star of Carter Gordon at fly half is clearly an experiment that is rapidly starting to bear fruit. I think, you know, there was a lot of surprise at the selection of Will Skelton as captain. But, you know, even one of rugby's famous bad boys seems to have learned something about, um, you know, a thing or two about discipline and leadership and his time at La Rochelle, um, you know, who are back-to-back -back European champions. Mark uh, Nawanakanasi, I really can't pronounce his name, I apologize, but he's proving to be a real revelation in the backs um, and is likely, I think, to be one of the standout players of the tournament. And, you know... Odds on, don't be surprised to see him take up residence in France after 28th of October. I think there's some really promising stocks in Australia's back row. Angus Bell was a real revelation at, at prop. Um, and I think, you know, despite some obvious omissions, I, I, I'm kind of excited about this Wallaby World Cup squad. And I think given their relatively easy route through the pools, um, 
I, I'm definitely going to have some fun watching them, at least until the quarterfinal stage. <coughs> Excuse me. But I think, you know, the buck is going to stop there, unfortunately. Um, I think, although there's an element of the dark horse with this Wallaby side, I think realistically the quarterfinals is, is, are as far as they're going to go. Maybe there's a semifinal in there, but uh, I think that's a that's a real outside chance. But let's face it, Eddie Jones loves those kinds of odds. Um, in terms of the emissions, I wasn't surprised by Quade Cooper. I think he's long past his sell-by date. But I think the decision to take only one specialist 10 to France in the shape of Carter Gordon is a huge gamble. And that could well backfire on, on Eddie Jones. As much as it pains me to not see Michael Hooper, who everybody knows I'm a big fan of in the squad, I don't think there's any denying that that you know he's he's not quite there um, as he has been in the past. And there's some more potent options rapidly rising up through the ranks. Um, but I think, you know, it's it's pretty obvious. There's a definite green tinge in terms of experience to to Jones's selections for the World Cup. And I have a real interest in seeing how how it fares. It could be an absolute disaster or one of the most exciting uh, units to take to the pitch in this World Cup. Time will tell, but uh, I have to confess to be willing to give Jones a grudging benefit of the doubt on this one. Scotland, wow. Uh, I really enjoyed that that game at, at Murrayfield against um, supposedly, and it, it was for all intents and purposes, no denying it, a second string French side. I think, you know, they will be, without any shadow of a doubt, Poolby's giant banana skin. Ireland and South Africa, you have been warned. And I think, you know, what really was the revelation in that game for me was Blair Kinghorn at fullback. Um, like I say, I really enjoyed that game. Um, it wasn't a warm-up game. It was a full-blown Six Nations test match with no prisoners taken. You know, Scotland will sweat a little bit on the injury on Ben White, but apparently it's only precautionary, and Xander Fagerson's brain implosion with that red card, which sadly has a bit of a tendency of doing, also doesn't look to get set. Uh, he will be available for Scotland's critical opening game against South Africa. And that's when they're going to need all the phys- physicality they can muster. Um, but yeah, I think more than anything, you know, that second half from a 14-man Scotland, given Xander Fagerson's red card, they it was phenomenal. I mean, they pulled off the unthinkable and they took charge of the second half and emerged worthy winners. Sorry, a frog seems to go my throat. Um, what caught my eye the most, however, over and above Scotland's nerve and determination in the face of adversity was the impact made by fullback uh, Blair Kinghorn. Many people, myself included, seem to have a kind of a love-hate relationship with the Scottish utility back. Nevertheless, what I saw last Saturday definitely put me in the love camp and cemented my view that with a number 15 on his back, Kinghorn is a worthy successor, perhaps even better than Stuart Hogg, who has sadly decided to hang up his boots for good. Townsend needs to stop experimenting with with Kinghorn on the wing or at fly half and keep him at fullback. Whereas to me, as evidenced by his performance last Saturday, he clearly excels, while at the same time being an excellent, excellent complement to fellow 
master playmaker Flyaf and Russell. You know, Scotland's biggest problem has been inconsistency in selection and also execution. But in my opinion, they could start uh, fixing this by keeping the Russell Kinghorn access in place as a first step ahead of the World Cup and during the World Cup. You know, as a result, you know, imagine my enthusiasm when I saw the starting lineup for this week's repeat fixture in San Etienne, where they've decided to do exactly that. You know, I think if Scotland can master the art of consistency in both selection and execution, they could be one of the biggest surprises of this World Cup, despite being firmly camped in, in what's being called the pool of death. It's a good and exciting side, make no mistake, especially out wide with, <coughs> you know, the, the remarkable talents of wingers, uh, Darcy Graham and Duane van der Merwe. And, you know, when it comes to grunt up front, Scotland can hold their high their heads high with the best of them especially if they can keep a handle on their discipline. And I think if they could do that, they could genuinely trouble South African Ireland. This is a driven and very motivated side that in their current format looks the most settled they've been in a long time and one that I think just loves being given the the label of feisty underdogs. So I'd say if you're going to have a wild card flutter on any team come to the World Cup, I'd argue Scotland might just be your best bet. England. Oh boy, that wasn't a pretty sight last weekend in Cardiff, was it? Um, after watching England implode against Wales last Saturday, I couldn't help feeling that I was watching the same England from 2022 all over again. You know, and with new coach Steve Borthwick's World Cup squad announcement this Monday, it felt even more like a case of, you know, the, the Emperor's new clothes. Quite frankly, the rot that has just run through English rugby for the last two years is still very much at evidence. Um, you know, I just, you know, their ineptitude against a Welsh side that is arguably or supposedly in an even deeper crisis of confidence than England find themselves in was pretty disturbing. And, you know, to be honest, Wales certainly didn't appear to lack either confidence or, or fitness last Saturday in Cardiff, whereas England, by comparison, appeared to have neither. You know, England, as they have done for much of the last 18 months, looks slow, disorganized, and a tad out of shape. Um, you know, Wales coach Warren Gatlin's sort of infamous sort of pseudo-SAS brutal physical fitness training regime um, might be something England need to look at because there was some obvious huffing and puffing going on in the England camp last weekend. You know, add to that, the fact that England seemed to have forgotten that actually hanging on to a rugby ball is kind of one of the core basics of the game. I mean, they made a phenomenal 16 handling errors compared to Wales's two, and they only had 2% more of the possession. That's in the entire game. That's simply unacceptable going into a World Cup. You know, the scrum creaked and groaned and failed to get any traction against the Welsh. And, you know, England never looked like scoring when they were in the Welsh 22, um, especially as the, the likelihood of them dropping the ball seemed to increase ex exponentially the closer they got to the Welsh red zone. Um, you know, I don't think England will be as bad as they were last weekend in the repeat fixture this weekend at, uh, at, at Twickenham against Wales. Um, but I think, you know, Borthwick's World Cup squad selection certainly raised some eyebrows. It looks like a disturbingly familiar trip down memory lane and apart from you know some sprinklings of new talent into the mix it simply just does not fire my or many people i've talked to's imagination 
England are just not going to be an exciting team, plain and simple. They should have enough to grind out some uninspiring wins to possibly get them out of the pool stages. Only then, I think, to get decimated by teams embracing a much more dynamic brand of rugby in the quarterfinal stages and beyond. You know, despite him being chosen as English, England's only genuine specialist number eight when we're talking about the, the World Cup squad selection, selecting Binny, Billy Vunapola, who to me is increasingly injury-prone, out of shape, and unable to keep up with the more dynamic eights of the modern game, came as a surprise. He's simply two-dimensional and easily read by opposition defenses who figured out, you know, figured him out a long time ago. Danny Care, for me, has done nothing to impress at test level in the nine jersey all year, as brilliant as he is at club level. And don't get me started on, on Ben Youngs, who is beyond pedestrian. Meanwhile, in the centers, Borthwick stays true to the belief held by Eddie Jones that Manu Tuolagi can somehow single-handedly right England's ship despite the fact he's likely to be injured and out of the tournament by England's second game. And in general, looks kind of woefully out of form when compared to many of the other current centers in the modern game at test level. You know, in short, England may pull some rabbits out of the hat and may surprise us all as the tournament in France unfolds, but I can't help thinking Borthwick's much maligned predecessor, Eddie Jones, may have more luck at playing magician with his new-look wallabies. I wish England well, as a World Cup without them as real contenders is always a loss. But I have a hunch my interest will likely lie elsewhere this World Cup. Well, it will, plain and simple. Um, but yeah, I wish them well. Well, that's it for this week, folks. Uh, and the good news is that life and work have calmed down enough for me to resume regular service. Take care, stay safe, uh, and enjoy the dwindling days of summer and look forward to the excitement looming just over the horizon. Stay safe, talk to you soon, and all the very best.